So glad that you're with us. Um, church 21, we're one church, four different locations, uh, and we really love Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't know if I love Jesus. I'm pursuing Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm waiting to find answers to the questions that I have. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to I wanna preface everything we're doing this morning uh, with this. So this is like pre-pre-sermon, all right? Uh, it's, you're, you get two gifts this morning. Uh, so when we think about Christianity... Oftentimes we think about there's, there's a rule that we have to follow, and if we follow that rule, then we can belong to Christianity. And if we don't follow that, those rules, then we don't belong to, to Christianity, or, or we're bad Christians, and that's just not what Christianity is. Christianity is a bunch of messed up people that have found all their hope in Jesus and are pursuing him. And he doesn't magically change us completely. Uh, we, we're pretty banged up and messed up together, and we keep journeying and following after him. And so that's what the church is. So if you're here and you have lots of questions or doubts or concerns, every single person in this room at one point was there. No one is doing any of this perfectly. This is not a show to congratulate ourselves. We ultimately want to submit to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And so I would, I would encourage you that if you don't believe this, to do what C.S. Lewis would do with his friends and say, imagine that this were true. Imagine that the world was this way. And would it, would it be uh, more in order? Would it be more just? Would it be more beautiful than the world that we actually have and the life that I'm living? So that's just a preface. Let me pray. And then I'll, I'm not even starting my timer yet. This is all like an announcement, basically. So it doesn't even dig into my time. Uh, let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you know each person that is here and their story, uh, where they're coming from. Uh, you know even where they're going to be going and what they're going to be uh, getting into. And I pray that you would get yourself into their hearts and that you would reorient everything about them around you and, and who you are and what you're doing. And, um, and for those of us who can say it, we, we love you, Jesus. And regardless of whether we can say that or not, you do love us. And so we're so thankful to be here this morning. We love you. Amen. All right, so the great theologian, um, Beyonce, um, that's how theologians pronounce her name. Uh, you common people say Beyonce, but like, here's what she says in her great um, tome of a work on, on singleness. Uh, all the single ladies and all the single ladies, all the single ladies, in case you miss it, all the single ladies, get your hands up, Right? And then later on, uh, she gets into it and just says, you know, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. So what we're not going to do is exegete the text of Beyonce this morning. Um, I think she's reached her crowd, and that's great. Um, but we're going we're gonna to actually look at what God has to say about singleness and dating. And we're in this series called Sextember because we're really creative and clever and can't come up with good names for series. So we just replace letters. And I'm like, hmm, what happens if I take P out and put X? September. There it is. So we talk about sex often during the month of September. Why? Because everyone else is talking about sex. And if you're part of the church, uh, probably conversations that you've had with a pastor or leader have been awkward and strange. And, and, and they're like, well, did your parents talk to you about this first? And it gets very weird and awkward. And so we're just, we lead with this. We lead with this. I think one of our first sermons ever when we launched a church was on sex. And it's just important for us to talk about because Jesus cares about this. Last week, we talked about the purpose or intention of sex. Uh, Jordan was here, uh, one of our other pastors, preaching on that. You can podcast that. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. And this morning, we're talking about dating and singleness. And I just want, uh, I just want to warn you in advance. Usually, we try and hit between 35 and 45 
minutes in, in sermons, but we're cramming dating and singleness together. And so if it goes a little bit long, I'm not even apologizing for it, and I'm not going to say anything about the length of this. So uh, I was late getting here from my last location, if that gives you any indication. All right, so the Bible, we're going to talk about dating and singleness, but we'll start with singleness, because the Bible says a lot about singleness, not a lot about dating. So we'll start with what we know, and in fact, every single person in this room, if you're like, I don't have anything in common with anyone else in this room, yes, you do, because at one point, all of us were single. Every single one of us was single, and some of us one day will be single again, because our spouses partners that we're in relationship with, they don't necessarily live longer than we do. So we've all begun single. And Paul, the author of so much in the New Testament, maybe the, the individual that had the greatest impact on Christianity, Paul was single. So I want to start with reading some of his words from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, please get a Bible in the back as you're leaving today. Um, sometimes when we read longer portions of the Bible, right? It was just one verse earlier. When we read longer portions, we kind of check out, we think of other things because we're not quite sure exactly what they're saying. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you can like circle it and underline it. It's okay to do that. God's not really mad about that. He wants for you to engage with his word. And so uh, let, me, let me read a few verses that Paul said about singleness. Starting in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. Corinth was a city. Um, I know, I'm going to get to the verse. Uh, it was a city, cool, hip, urban, trendy, like Montreal. Uh, sexuality was carte blanche, do whatever you want, with whomever you want, however many times, doesn't matter. That was it. Uh, to, be, to be single and only single was kind of a bad thing because you need to use your body uh, so that other people are consuming it and you're consuming other people's bodies. What we're experiencing now in our world is not new. It's very old. It's cycles of, of time. So Paul writes this. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And then he says, to the unmarried and to the widow, I say that it is good. It is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, reading this verse, so, okay, so Paul, he's a single guy. Had maybe the greatest impact on Christianity other than, of course, Jesus, who actually began everything. Paul Paul believes in Jesus. Paul is single. And what he's saying here is he's using the same exact word that God used of his creation when God looks at everything and says, it is good. It's good. Paul is saying to singles, it is good. It is good. You're not a second-class citizen. You're not a half a person. Sometimes married people talk about their, their spouse, they're like, this is my better half. It's awkward if they say, this is my worst half. I've never seen that or heard that go well for anyone. But basically, it's like, I'm half a person. What's your name? You know, that's not it. You weren't half a person. You met another half person. You became whole. You were a whole person. You have dignity and value before you would ever become married. And I, and I was thinking, I try and get into a scripture writer's head, like, was Paul just bitter and angry? Like, I'm just mad that I'm single, so like, you all ought to be single too. Life should stink for you like it stinks for me, you know? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the goodness of God is experienced in singleness. And then he goes on, and I'm going to read a, a larger portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 25, Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, so the engaged, I have no command from the Lord. So he's saying, listen, Jesus didn't drop down a, a manual for me, what I'm supposed to say. 
But he says, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He said, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, when, when you hear it as he is, also hear how she is, okay? Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry, listen to this, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Paul is not going to get invited to the marriage conference using this text, it seems. Yeah, you want to get married, you're all going to have trouble. I want to spare you from it. And then he says, well, this is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Remain single because the appointed time is very short. And before I get into that, let me read a few more verses. Verse 32 to 35, he said, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this, not, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now listen to what Paul says. If you're going to get married, you just need to know you're going to have trouble. We get into these relationships, and we'll talk about this in a minute with dating, and it's like, man, everything revolves around this person. I can't wait to not have to say goodbye to them. I can't wait to look into their lazy eye for the rest of my life. It's going to be incredible, right? Like, we get this, this romantic picture of what this is going to be like, and Paul's just saying, yes, that's good. Marriage is good. He's not pitting singleness and marriage against one another, but he's saying, if you get married, you're going to have trouble. And if you get married, your concerns are going to be divided because the person that's single, their concerns and their attentions can be completely on Jesus and who he is and what he wants from them rather than, well, honey, what do you want to watch? And what time would you like to go to bed? And I don't want to go to bed, but if you need me in bed when you go to sleep, I guess I'm going to do that. And I want to get up early in the morning. I'm just giving you apparently my issues, right? Um, And I want to get up early in the morning, but that blessing the little blessings that are, are a byproduct of our marriage, right? They're waking up early and they come down and they're like, Daddy, I love you. I'm like, I love you too. Get back in bed. I'm supposed to be meeting with the Lord and being holy. Get back in bed. I speak like that before 6 a.m., right? The Lord. And it's like, go back to bed. And then they're going back to bed angry and they wake up their other sibling and I'm like, Lord, apparently you don't want me to meet with you. But when I was single, it's like, I can sit here all day long. I can be with the Lord, I can nap with the Lord, I can wake up, I can brunch with the Lord, I can second nap, I can 11 Z's with the Lord, like, I can do whatever I want with the Lord. Concerns are divided. But what Paul says is the time is drawing near. What's this time that Paul is talking about? He's saying, we only have a limited time. Your life is like a vapor, the Bible says. Vapor, I went camping this weekend, vapors come up, I go to take a picture, turn around, they're gone. They're gone, no picture, no misty, beautiful picture with mountains. Gone. Your life turned around. Where is it? Gone. Paul is saying you're not here to just get everything you can get out of life. You're here so that you can know Jesus, enjoy Jesus, and proclaim and serve 
to the people around you. The time is short, and as a single person, you have more time at your disposal. And I remember being single and hearing people say that. I'm like, uh-uh, you don't understand. Like, I, I have a lot of things to do. And I'm not saying you don't have a lot of things to do. I'm just saying you have more time at your disposal. You can do things when you want to do them. I don't get the option of it. I can, but they just have names like deadbeat dad, right, that go along with that. I don't get to serve the Lord and my family in the same way that you get to serve the Lord in your singleness. The time is limited. Time is limited. And in verse 38 of of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually says something that is quite astounding. He says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well. Marriage is a good thing, does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And I said to my wife this morning, and you know, I rounded up the whole thing, but I said, Jess, I'm preaching on you know, dating and singleness. She's in the West Island at our other location. And I said, uh, hey, I, I'm preaching, and um, I'm going to say that being single is better than being married. And I quickly like, rounded that out, right? It's not like, so here's what I think the plan should be. Because Paul actually says, are you married? Like, stay married. But the idea is that Paul is saying it's, it's better in, in regards to the limited time that we have, the mission that God has given to us, it's better to remain as you are so that you can be a 24-7 servant of the Lord in any circumstance. If you call me at 3 a.m. and tell me I'm melting down over here and I look at my child who's throwing up on their sibling at 3 a.m., I'm like, I'm not coming. I'm so sorry. Call Evan. Why didn't you call Evan in the first place? How did you get my number? Why am I talking to my fingers, right? 3 a.m. is really a bad, a bad time. But I know a pastor in, in Colorado, good-looking dude, uh, not unattractive, could have found a wife, I'm, I'm certain of it, and he has chosen not to because he says, brother, like I have, people have 24-7 access to me. And I love telling people about Jesus. And when I had marriage or devotion to the Lord put in front of me, they're not opposed to one another, right? You can be married and devoted to the Lord. We just do that together. He said, I choose this one. And I want to go do evangelism at 2 a.m. I want to be with these people. I want to work a lot. I want my life to be expanded and spent for the kingdom of God in this way that I choose this intentionally because I believe it's better for me to remain single than to get married. You see, we have to take our singleness and get it out of that weird avenue that's called toward marriage. Well, I'm on this highway for now, but I'm really looking forward to that city up there. It's like, no, you've bought a lie. You've bought a lie that marriage is so much better than singleness. I wouldn't trade what I have at all. But it's not that one is is greater than than the other. We must reorient our singleness around his mission, which means that you generously get to serve the goodness of Jesus all the time. Being single, I remember being single. I remember walking around Montreal, being in my mid-20s, being single, feeling like God was punishing me for something. I remember being frustrated. My angry prayers were around my singleness. And then God moved me from, from anger to awe of him. And it moved me to a place where it's like, okay, if you want to provide a spouse, I'm in. You don't want me to, I, I'm in. But we have to work our way through that process with him. But imagine a soldier waking up in a foreign land, like gun in hand, uh, 
all their military garb on, waking up and being like, what am I doing here? And then someone else reminds them, we're on a mission to protect these people, or we're on a mission to take over this place, we're on a mission to do this. They're like, yes, we're on a mission. That's why I'm here. For you singles, when you wake up, you need to be reminded that you are on a mission. You are on a mission. You marrieds, when you wake up, you need to be reminded that you are on a mission. And it's not a, a mission to just take care of yourself. It's a mission to make, to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And with singleness, it's this, it's this twofold thing. Because there are major benefits. I remember being single. If you've met Jeff Wright, uh, he preaches here once in a while. He's out in the West Island, one of the pastors there. He and I have very similar life stories. Uh, but we, we grew up uh, in, in Maine, known each other for many years, um, moved here, spent summers together, such a small place one time that only our, our two beds fit in a room. And it was very awkward being like, okay, good night, buddy. Like fist pound across the mattress, right? You're like, okay. But what was so cool about that was he would say, bro, I can't sleep. I'm like, I can't sleep either. And we would go and we would talk to people about Jesus in our neighborhood at two in the morning who were out getting bagels coming fresh out of the brick oven. I can't wake my wife up now and be like, honey, see if we can get a sitter so we can do evangelism at the bagel shop. She'd be like, you're, you're nuts. You're nuts. Like, get your priorities right. Don't wake me up for that. Singleness has a major benefit, but it comes with a huge struggle because many of you are waiting to get out of single hell. You think that God is punishing you and he's put you in this place and you just need to get out of this place. And when you get out of this place, life is going to be so much better and God will somehow approve of you more and the church will accept you more. And we're just saying we really value singles. God really values singles so much so that Jesus, being God, remains single. Paul, having the greatest influence in, on, in the world, flipping the world upside down with the gospel, single saying it's, it's better to remain this way. And so I want to encourage you that if you're single and you're frustrated, today is the only day that you have to be single. Today is the only day that you have to be single. And you're like, okay, Dory. But what about tomorrow? Well, we're not talking about tomorrow. Today is the only day that you have to be single. And listen to what Jesus gives us today. Lamentations. You're like, oh good, we're going to Lamentations now about singleness. Stick with me. Lamentations is lamenting about what's going on around us. Lamentations, the, the author says this, in the midst of lamenting of the situation, he says, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end. And here it is, they're new every morning. You're not called to live out of yesterday's mercy and gifts. It's new today. It's new for you today. Great is your faithfulness, God. And then the single and married person can both say this, the Lord is my portion, says the Lord. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Today is the only day that you have to remain single. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We have no idea. Today, 
you're single, today you're married, today that guy's cleaning the streets and he's doing a great job, I'm sure. But today is all that we have and today you're not half a person. Today you are full recipient of the unrelenting love of God that is coming at you like a tsunami wave because the earthquake of the resurrection has hit and now the love of God is rushing towards you. You are not a second class citizen in the kingdom of God because you are single. He's giving himself fully to you. So here's, here's the, the, the big push. Don't waste your singleness. Don't waste it. For most of you, it's a season. For some of you, it's going to be a lifetime. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't think, well, I'm young, I'm single, I'm going to save money, I'm going to uh, fill up my RRSP, I'm going to advance my career, I'm going to travel, I'm going to study, I'm going to do things that are all about me. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. But when everything, when you use all your single time, all the single time, all the single time, when you use all of that just to put a ring on your finger, when you use it so that the world orbits just around you, that's not the kingdom of God. That's not what he wants you to be about. Remember, you already have everything in Christ. You're not lacking anything. So now take the time and freedom that you have to serve him. I was reflecting on uh, both my life and, and Jeff's life, and uh, both of us, uh, we worked full-time. Uh, we went to school full-time. We were leading ministries, uh, we were doing evangelism, we were doing hobbies. Like, I don't remember a time being single that I was home alone at night. I just don't remember time. Because as a new follower of Jesus, I'm like, I want all my time, all my stuff to be about him. I don't know how long the season's going to last, but I'm going to pursue him with everything and Jesus is inviting you into a similar thing. Not to burn out. Don't show Jesus how much stuff you can do. You work out of the goodness that you've received and that, that tsunami wave that he has hit you with. And tsunamis, they're destructive. It's probably a bad metaphor, okay? But the tsunamis, when they hit, they don't just hit and then like recede back. They hit and then they just keep going. And people are fleeing up to the mountains because that water is moving all throughout the cities and towns around the coast. Allow for, for the, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus to move you along as well. He's not calling you to show him how, how awesome you are. He's calling for you to enjoy him and then go and share him with others. In fact, Jesus invested his singleness into the kingdom of God and laid down his life for you. You're like, man, I don't want to be single. It's hard to be single. Scripture says that Jesus understands every temptation that you're going through. He understands sexual frustration. He understands being abandoned. He understands being forgotten. He understands being misunderstood by his family. He understands. And he, and he loves you. And he's with you. And he is for you. And he has made you complete and you lack nothing. And if you were to remain single your entire life, do you realize that you have billions of people in your family? Sam Albury uh, write, wrote a book about singleness and, and he just writes because he's a, a single guy and is going 
to remain single the rest of his life, he says, as, as far as he can see. And he says, people say, oh, but you'd be such a good dad. And he says, well, I am a dad. And they're like, no, you're single. What are you talking about? He says, I have lots of sons and daughters. All over the world, I have sons and daughters. He says, I have brothers and sisters, and I have moms and dads, and I have house keys of people all around North America who have given me keys to their home. And they're saying, son, when you come to our city, here's your house. He says, I don't lack anything. Jesus has given me a family that I could never have biologically on my own. I couldn't have billions of kids, but now I do. I'm part of a huge family. And Jesus' stuff is, is everywhere. Everywhere. Let me wrap up this, this portion of singleness by reading a few verses from, from Philippians. Philippians was written by, by Paul as well. And, and Philippians uh, chapter 4 uh, it's often taken out of context, and I'm going to do that again. And uh, oftentimes people take it out of context unknowingly, and I'm knowingly doing it, uh, because I think we can. Uh, so let me, let me just read it. Uh, it's Paul writing to the church who had supported him, and he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's talking about money. Okay, he's talking about money. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. And here's the secret for all that. And this is the secret that I think we can apply to everything. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, athletes would be like, yeah, I won the ski thing because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, well, what about that Christian guy who fell on his face doing the ski thing? I guess he should have claimed that verse. But, so it's not meaning that. But it's the idea that even as, as singles, we can remain single because it's, it's him who's strengthening us. And then he says in verse 14, and this is what I actually want to come to, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And so if you're single, here's what I want to say. We want to partner with you in your singleness. We want to partner with you in your singleness. For those who are, who are here who are married, now we used to have one church, people coming from you know, all portions of the city, we had lots of married couples. We have fewer married couples downtown now because all the married couples are now part of our other locations. So there's not as much. But if you're married here, and I've, and I've been talking to other locations about this as well, that if you're married, part of your responsibility is to invest in singles. Don't be like, oh good, we're married. Now we're gonna join the married group. This is why we don't have socioeconomic or demographic city groups. It's like, oh, you live here, this is your group. It's like, yeah, but I don't, I don't like rich people. I don't like poor people. I don't like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me whether you like, like God's going to use those people to change you. Welcome to the group. Because that's what he does. We don't put married people with, with married people. We say married people, you need single people, and single people need Married people, please invest in them. Invite them in. Invite them into your celebrations. We had a Christmas, uh, it was probably five or six years ago, uh, where we didn't get to go to our family's house, uh, either my wife's family or my family. And so we invited a bunch of single people over and watched Home Alone with them, had a meal. And I was kind of, I was kind of irritated, honestly, because I'm like, well, I want to build my traditions with the kids, and instead, like, the kids are talking to them, and, like, I'm having to hear people's stories, and, like, this is supposed to be vacation, and I'm just giving you, 
a glimpse into my inner workings, okay? I'm broken too. And, and then it's like I had this eureka moment or this spirit-led moment of like, oh my goodness, like we are family. I believe that, but now I'm experiencing it. And these people who would have been sitting in Christmas all by themselves now have kids. And they're going to watch kids open up gifts. And it's, it's bringing a whole new meaning to being the family of God for these seven people, so much so that many of them still talk about it and replicate the same things with some of the families that they have now. Married people invest in singles, invite them in, give them a key. Now, I'm not saying like, oh, you're single, welcome to church. Here's a key to my house, here's my address. Like, no, no background check necessary, just like head on out there. It's not that. But as they become real family, as we experience that, here's a key. You're welcome anytime. You don't need to text. You don't need to call. I mean, like maybe if, if this thing's hanging in the window, maybe don't come in. Like, uh, I don't know, help them out, right? Help the, not to be awkward. But invest in them. And if you're singles, please let people know your needs. I've met with people that, that are frustrated because I couldn't read their minds. Didn't you know I was alone on this holiday? I'm like, No. Well, how would you not know that? Because I don't live with you and you didn't tell me. Why don't you tell me that you're going to be alone? You're going to be here. Is there anyone that I could hang out with? And I thought you were introverted. I, didn't, I thought Christmas alone was awesome for you. I, I had no idea, right? But let us know. Let us know what your needs are so that we can meet them, so that we can connect you with other people. And, and if you're single, live this better life that Paul is talking about now. Don't waste your singleness. Don't waste your singleness. Now, I want to get into dating. So transition usually is from singleness to dating to marriage, at least in our culture. I know some of you come from cultures where dating is not a thing, and uh, it's just like, nope, these, this is who I'm going to marry, and that's kind of it. And I get to talk to them a little bit. And uh, in a sense, I think that's really beautiful um, because we miss so many things in our dating we look past so many things that people who actually care about us are considering and overseeing and looking at me like, ah, I know you better than you know yourself and you actually need this. But we don't live in that culture. We live in a culture that dates. So let's talk about dating. Um, the Pew uh, Research Center says this, dating is hard. This is why we give billions of dollars to research centers. So it's like, dating is hard. Like, yes, we would agree. But their research actually points to, to the reality that half of adults have given up dating. They've just given it up. Why? Hosts of reasons, but when they get into some of the individual um, conversations and interviews that they had, people are afraid of dating. There's fear associated with it. Okay, there's one. Second one, the guy was asked, like, why, why, don't you, why aren't you dating? He says, well, asking a girl out feels a bit too aggressive for me. Okay. You used to have to, like, pick up the phone and, like, not this, right, but have to hold the phone with a wire attached to it and hope that the dad doesn't pick up because you don't want to talk to the dad, right? And you're talking to the friend, and you're like, can you tell her around 4 p.m. to, like, be hanging around near the phone? What time does her dad come home? Okay, like, got to be earlier, right? But you used to have to call up and, and ask and it felt aggressive in a sense because you're like, oh, this is very, this is very scary. And you, I'd always hang up. It was the third call that was money for me, right? I'd, I'd call, then I'd be like, uh, no. And then 
third time I would I get through. But th- for this guy, it feels aggressive. People feel like dating, they're, they're ill-prepared for it. Like, what am I supposed to do? How do I actually do this? How do I actually do this? Another person felt like dating, asking someone on a date was harassment. What if they sue me? These are real fears of real people. But most people just said, you know what, we've moved past dating because things like Tinder exist and we can just treat one another like commodities and I can go on, I can look at someone's face, their profile and be like, yep, 11 p.m. tonight, here, done. I don't need to engage in relationship with people. I can consume someone like an Uber product and then send them away when I'm done. That's our idea of a dating app. Right? Dating is probably not a great word anyway, but when that becomes dating, it gets really confusing. And this is what our culture does. We treat people like capitalistic commodities to be consumed for our desires and then disposed of when we're done with them. That's, that's the air we breathe. And people don't date because they feel like it's hopeless. All right, so what does the Bible say about dating? That's what the Pew Research Center says. Dating's hard. What does the Bible say? Well, nothing really. The Bible doesn't doesn't say uh, Tinder is bad, eHarmony good, choose that. Or, you know what, if you meet a lady, here's how to lead into that. Or if you're a lady, here's how you might want to present yourself so that said guy is attracted by you or finds you amusing or whatever. That's just not there. It's not there. In fact, the more that you look in Scripture for an example of sexuality other than, than Jesus, it gets just very broken. It's very broken. But dating, dating is supposed to lead to marriage, remember? So dating, let's, let's use the analogy of a highway. When you get onto a highway, you don't go from like country road to like highway. You have an on-ramp. And that on-ramp is supposed to allow for you to accelerate and go faster. And there's not a stop sign. It's a yield. And a yield means just make sure that no one's coming that's going to destroy you. But keep going faster and get on the highway. That's what dating is supposed to be. But dating for so many people is more like a hobby. Have you ever been trying to get on the highway and that person decides they actually don't want to get on the highway and they stop? It happens in Montreal a lot. And then they don't pull over. They they just put it in reverse. And I'm like, I don't know what game we're playing, but I don't like it. I don't feel safe. I don't want to test the airbags out. I don't like it. And, and they somehow maneuver their way off the on-ramp, and it's just really awkward. But that's how so many people approach dating. It's like, it's like it's a hobby for them, that we date like it's a hobby, like people play on-ramps like it's a hobby. No, I'm not going on the high. I'm just going to get on the on-ramp and then get off again. Like, this is what I do with my time. It's like, brother, you need to meet Jesus and reorient your time differently. But that's how we, we, we so often view Dating, but it's not. Dating is supposed to be marriage preparation, and marriage is biblical, so let's, let's start there. Now, I'm going to say a very revolutionary thing that you might disagree with, and you're welcome to disagree with it. It's not my idea. This is what God has to say, and so you can fight with God about it. You can discuss with me about it. We'd love to, but marriage, the government doesn't get to define marriage. The church doesn't get to define marriage. You don't get to define, define marriage. God says that marriage is a lifelong covenant made between one man and one woman coming together. That's what he says. And this is a covenant to love and serve one another. And that covenant actually points to Jesus and the church and the way that they're supposed to function and love one another. 
because the church is called the bride of Christ. And so though we don't have specifics around dating, we have a lot of wisdom in Scripture that we can apply to dating. So I want to do that, and then I'll end by giving you eight, eight things about, about dating. So let me read to you from uh, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, which was read for us at the beginning. We don't have time to get into all this, like what everything means, but it's a woman talking to her friends, the does and the gazelles. Like this is poetic for her friends, other women. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So the first piece of wisdom I want to talk about for dating is that sex is not part of your pre-marriage. Sex is not part of your singleness. And you're like, well, I'm really smart. Let me ask a question. What is sex? And I would say, stop it. You know what sex is. We ask, we're asking silly questions as cultures right now. Sex, this, this word is porneia. And porneia, I have this, this drawer that my wife has given me, right? Nice house, I have a drawer. Um, and in that drawer, because I make stacks everywhere, I make piles everywhere, and so she puts everything into my drawer for me, and it's a hidden mess. But that drawer is like a junk drawer. You can find almost anything you want in that drawer. And that's what porneia is. It's like, yeah, but it's like oral sex, sex, yep, porneia. Yeah, but it's like petting, is that sex? Yep, porneia. But like, what about like grind? Yeah, I don't know how specific I have to get with you all, but like all porneia. What about looking at porn? Um, yep, porn, ea, right? All of it. Not for you. It's not for you. You don't get to touch this. MC Hammer said it. Can't touch this, right? All these great theologians in our midst. But that's the first part. Sex is not part of pre-marriage. Don't ask, what is sex? Sex is for that one man, one woman coming into covenant together because that's what God says. And we as Christians, even if you don't like it, our life is one that we continually submit to Jesus and we say, okay, I don't really like this, but help me learn to submit to this because I want what you want because what you're doing is eternal. What I'm doing is I can barely feed myself today. Help me get behind your kingdom. So that's the first principle. Don't have sex. It's going to mess everything up. It will. This isn't a, uh, a command to just make your life hard. It's a command to bring actual life to you. We can't get into all of the, the ins and outs of that, so let me just move on. 2 Corinthians, last week Jordan talked a lot about it. We'll talk about gender and sexuality next week, and then we'll talk about digital sex the week after that. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, uh, Paul writes this, do, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or fellowship has light with darkness? And so Paul is saying uh, on a whole host of things, but including marriage, that if you love Jesus, don't marry someone that doesn't love Jesus. I just met a couple recently where he loves Jesus and he walked away from his faith in Jesus, but now he's trying to figure things out again. But during that time, he married someone that doesn't love Jesus, and they have a child, and he says, oh, I really want to help her understand who God is. And his wife says, well, I don't believe in God, so don't talk to our child about God. Well, what do we do? What do we do? We're, we're, we're unequally yoked. It's like 
you know, a yoke is something, it's not, a, it's not an egg, right, that just doesn't look right. Uh, it's a yoke that goes on animals to help plow a field. And it's kind of like putting a bull and, and a, a little dog, a bull and a bulldog together to plow a field. And that yoke is going to be like this. And ultimately, you know, Buddy Bull is going to fall over and crush, you know, Billy the bulldog. And then you're going to have to figure out, do I actually want to eat the dog or what? Like, I'm hungry. But the, you're going to be stuck, right? And the field won't get, won't get plowed. Nothing will go well. And Paul is saying, this is going to be your marriage. You're going to keep falling over. And one of them is not going to be with Jesus forever. And forever, you're going to continuously be going in different directions on everything. Fight the urge to marry because she's so beautiful. I just, I just love him so much. And I, and I know that they, they, they don't love Jesus and they're not into him now, but eventually, like, I'm going to date them. My new mission, I'm not going to be part of a city group. I'm going to make this my new city group. And I'm gonna, my, my missional dating is going to, I, I'm going to get on an on-ramp. I'm going to offer on-ramps to people so that they meet Jesus. It's a really bad idea. And you're like, yeah, but I can give you a story of someone who did become a Christian because of that. Like, that's great. God worked in spite of their foolishness. You need Jesus far more. I, I love my wife. Oh, my goodness. I would choose my wife over anyone in this world. But she's a really bad God. She's a bad God. She cannot provide what my soul needs. And if something were to happen to her, I would mourn, I would grieve, but I would be okay. The Lord is my portion. She doesn't complete me. He does. I love her so much. I feel like I have to keep saying this because it's being recorded. I love her so much. I would lay my life down for her. I buy, yeah, anyway. But she doesn't complete me in that way. He does. That person that you think is going to make your life, they can't. 1 Corinthians um, 9, 5, Paul says to, uh, that he has a right to take a believing wife, but he doesn't. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, I, I'm going to be fast about this because we have to apply this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39 to 40, Paul writes, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Here it is, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. So there are two options that she has. If, if her spouse or his spouse dies, he can marry or she can marry another follower of Jesus or remain single. That's it. No missionary dating. Why these restrictions, Dwight? Why these restrictions, Paul? Because our deepest identity is found in that we have been forgiven and freed because of what Jesus has done. He's alive. He's moving in us through his spirit. And he wants our marriage to continue the mission that we were on in our singleness. When you get married, you continue on mission, but now I have five other people in my family that we're on mission together, right? We're trying to reach our neighborhood with these five people. I'm doing this with my wife. The mission doesn't change. Marriage continues a mission in this new way. And so in light of that, how do we actually engage in dating? Let me give you eight things quickly but I want to say uh, two things before that. We want to pursue dating humbly. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. You think you have all this figured out? I know better than God. Man, you don't want God to oppose you. He's offering out grace. 
It's grace to the humble. It's a gift. Christmas. All the time we've got. He's offering that out. So we pursue dating humbly. And secondly, patiently. Don't force things. Don't overlook things because you just want to get out of your single state and get into, get into marriage. Don't force things. A lot of the things that you find cute now and overlook, you will hate in two years. They will annoy you. Uh, no, I think it's funny that you know, they, they, they speak this way about this person. Or I think it's cute that they talk this way or chew their food or fart at the table. No, that's so cute. It's just, like you will be so annoyed by that. My wife and I do not fart at the table, okay? How do we engage in dating? Humbly and patiently. And then with these eight things. First one is enjoy Jesus and be satisfied with him now. No one can satisfy you as he will. The psalmist in Psalm 42 says, I I am satisfied with you, right? I'm not going to spend more time on that. Be satisfied with him. Let him be your portion. Secondly, pray. James, the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 2 says, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. If you want to be married and you think that's a good idea, ask God for that. God, would you provide this person for me? But then James 4.3 says, um, also, you don't have because you, you do ask, but you ask with, with ulterior motives. So it's like you don't have because you don't ask, and you also don't have because you ask, but it's not for the, the, the reason that God wants this for you. And so in our prayers, in our asking, we don't pray so that we just get stuff from God. It's in prayer that God reorients our hearts. And I might be praying for something like, Lord, give me a Lamborghini. That'd be so awesome to drive a Lamborghini. I actually don't want to maintain a Lamborghini. I, I love my beat up cars because I don't have to do anything to them. But like, Lord, give me this thing because I really want it. And then praying for that thing over an amount of time, you start to realize that, huh, maybe, maybe God doesn't desire me to have that because I want to use this just for me, not for his purposes. So we work that stuff out with him in prayer. And we learn to rest under his sovereignty. I'm single. I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to sit and chill because you're in control. So we enjoy Jesus. We pray. Third, we work on being the right spouse. Some of you, you know, Martin Luther started the Reformation kind of when he nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, um, Germany. And some of you have like 96 theses of what a perfect spouse is, and you're running around nailing them to people, figuratively hopefully, but nailing them and looking and being like, ah, you have 85 of them, but these other ones, I'm like, 85? Like, you're hitting Dean's list at that point. Like, that's really good. That's, and you're like, yeah, but like this one, it's like that one you won't care about. Don't worry about that, right? And I, I remember meeting with a guy and Man, perfect, perfect woman for him. I knew him. I knew her. Perfect together. And he's like, ah, I think I'm going to call it off. I'm like, why? And I'm not going to give it away because I don't want to. They're not part of the church, but they might watch. And I don't want to out them. But, um, but they told me why. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, I became angry. Like, the anger of the Lord was kindled inside of me. Right? And I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yes. I'm like, you're an idiot. You know, thus saith the Lord, you're an idiot. (laughs) Like, why would you give up this beautiful woman because of that? And not just beautiful on the outside, but super beautiful on the inside. He's like, oh, yeah, you think that's not, right? That's how he was basically talking. He's fixed now, but like, yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm like, not a big deal, man. It's going to be amazing. Now they're married happily. Things are going well. 
overlooked, right? Take your little like theses and burn that paper. Do you love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Right? Work on you. Work on you. You become the right spouse. You kill sin that you're going to be bringing into that marriage before you actually bring it in there. Fourth, have married friends. I already spoke about this earlier, but as you're dating, ask married friends questions and be humble. You know what irritates me so much? And if you've done it, I'm so sorry I'm calling you out. I don't have your face in my mind. Is when people come to me asking me for wisdom and I tell them based on lots of experience and they're like 16 and they say, yeah, I don't see things the same way. I'm like, your brain's not even fully formed yet. You know, like, of course you don't see it that way. But when you come to people for wisdom, actually be willing to put that thing into play. Come saying, I want you to teach me. I want to learn. I don't know these things. And I'm coming humbly. Ask married people questions and married people invest in couples dating. Fifth, get to know people as friends and in groups. Don't rush to the one-on-one thing. I just can't wait to get inside of an overpriced cafe where we get to talk to one another and be across the table one-on-one, and I get to look deep into her. What color are her eyes again? I can't remember, right? And I get to look deep and do this thing. First dates and dates one-on-one are usually really weird, and they're mostly auditions anyway. Like, that's not the real person. Just hate to pop your bubble, but I'm into that this morning, apparently. Maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night. So sorry. Um, but get to know people as friends and in groups because as you're with people and you're like, hey, what do you think of her? I'm like, train wreck. Like, what? what? But I, she's purdy. I'm like, I know, but like, did you see all these things? And did you see how she was like flirting with every guy that came by? It's like, no, those eyes are for me. I'm like, nope, winking at everyone else. Like, you don't see that because you want to see things this way. Let other people help vet the person for you. Let them be the ones to be like, I see so much chemistry between you two, right? I see this, not just you. And that's so encouraging when other people see it. Let your relationship be vulnerable before others. On this men's trip we went on this weekend, which was amazing. Oh my goodness, it was so good. But we talked about the difference between transparency and vulnerability. And Trenton Walker gave a great illustration. He said, imagine you're going to an open house to, to either rent, rent a place or, or buy a place. And you go up and you can only look through the windows. That's transparency, where you just get to look in, but you don't get to change anything. But, an, but vulnerability is when you get a key and you get to walk into the house and you're like, did you ever think about that? Or did you see that? What about this piece? Like, this seems like a big deal. Why is all that water dripping in this place where it shouldn't? You know, that's being vulnerable. Bring your relationships with people in that way. Here's a key to our relationship. Would you please walk around it and help us navigate so that we are building a relationship that's on about Jesus? It doesn't mean you can't ever hang out one-on-one, but give it time. Because oftentimes we lead people on when we get to one-on-one too quickly. And we dispose of them, not meaning to, but kind of like we do on Tinder. We just like, oh, no, you talk that way, your laugh's like that, I'm going to get rid of you. If the laugh is what's going to do it, you could have heard that in a group setting, not leading her on. Or him on. Guys' laughs are usually more annoying. Sixth, six, I, I'm getting there, I'm almost there, all right? Ask and practice. Ask someone if they'd like to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to model it for you. Hi, my name is Dwight. 
you're pretty. This is awkward. Would you like to hang out with me at some point? Would you like to talk? Would you like to whatever, right? Whatever it is. But offer that. Offer that out to someone. You don't have because you don't ask. Ask and practice. Define the relationship. This is really important as well. Don't, don't, don't come to me and be like, oh, it's really complicated. I'm like, it's not complicated. Do you like him? Do you like her? Are you dating? Is this leading to marriage? Not complicated. We just solved it. But you're afraid to have that, relate, have that conversation because you're afraid of the letdown that you're going to feel when that person doesn't feel the same way. So let someone guide you through it. Let someone guide you through it and work through. Why don't you feel this way, right? Involve other people. It doesn't just have to be you and her, you and him. And if it isn't working, acknowledge that. You should leave the person's heart that you date in better condition than when it began. They should be more Christ-like afterwards than before. And if they were to get married, their spouse should be able to come to you and say, thank you so much for the way that you cared for my spouse's heart when you were dating. It is awkward would be an awkward conversation, but we just embrace the awkward and move forward. This ask and practice phase should only last as long as it must, but not forever. If, if Beyonce's words ring, are ringing true, right? It's like, just, just put a ring on it. Don't eternally date. Seven, commit to them. When you commit to someone, okay, I, I'm not going to be like crazy rules about this, but don't get super physical with people until you're ready to be physical with them forever. Don't lead people on with kisses and touches and it's like, oh, we just met like last week. I'm like, get your hands off her. Just met her last week. Like, who are you? Joker? Like, you have no idea. No idea. Don't commit with touch, words, and emotions without being ready to commit your life to them. Man, I messed, I became a Christian at 22. I won't give you my whole life story, but I messed up so many relationships before Jesus. And then even after Jesus, no one really discipled me in how to date as a Christian. So I even messed up some of those. And when I finally met Jess, I'm like, that's the person that I want to marry. I'm like, God, convince her. Like, trick her. Do something, right? Help her not see certain things. I don't know. But we had been dating for a while, and, um, and we had never kissed we were doing a long-distance relationship, so that helps too, okay? But we, we, hadn't, we hadn't kissed. I didn't say I love you until I'd already talked to her dad and was ready to take her to buy a ring the next day. So she was visiting in Maine, and we were, we were sitting at my parents' house, and, uh, and we were sitting watching something, and I said, hey, I want to tell you something. She's like, what? I said, I love you. And it was the first time, and she's like, yeah. She didn't do that, right? She said, uh, she said, yeah, I love you too. I'm like, oh, that's really good. And I said, can I kiss you? She's like, yes. I gave her a kiss and I said, tomorrow we're going to look at rings because I want to spend the rest of my life with you. All there, right? You want to talk about habit stacking? Boom, done, you know? But I, I didn't want to mess this up again. I didn't want to mess this up and I was ready to commit to her. Lastly, when you do commit, have a robust premarital counseling that is going to focus on the heart and you two. We don't talk about finances really in our premarital counseling because you can like YouTube that. Uh, we don't talk about a whole host of things. We do seven sessions that are all focused on your heart and the trouble that you're getting into. And I actually asked the bride, 
I don't usually ask the groom because he's like really into what's going to happen. I asked the bride on her wedding day after she's dressed and pictures are done. I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like dead serious. I'm like, are you sure you don't want to get married to him? She's like, Haha. I'm like, no, I'm serious. Do you want to marry him? She's like, yes. I want to spend the rest of my life with him. I'm like, good, let's do this. You know, like I'm ready. But you're not married until you're married. You're not married until you're married. And so we want to prepare you for that moment so that you're ready to serve the other person for the rest of your life. Okay, let me end. Let me end. Let me land the plane. Some of us have messed up all this. Some of us have messed up other people. Some of us are messing up other people right now, and some of us are messed up because of other people. And you just feel like really broken and unusable, and like no one would really be able to love you because of the stuff that's happened before or is currently happening. And I just want to say that there's so much hope for you today. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, there was a guy next to him being crucified for being a thief. And he came to understand who Jesus was as he was on the cross. And, and he looked at Jesus and, and he says, you know, basically, uh, I know who you are. You're the son of God. Would you remember me? Would you know me when you enter into your kingdom today? And Jesus didn't say, yeah, if you get yourself off the cross, go down, make right for all the things that you've wronged, and you solve everything, and then maybe I'll, I'll let you in. He looks at him and he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I forgive you. Everything in your past, gone. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation. And Jesus looks at you today. He turns to you as he turned to that thief on the cross. And he says, I'm holding out hope for you. There's so much hope. So much hope. And if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've messed up people and relationships, part of your calling very well might be to return to them and ask forgiveness. Oh, man, so I dated someone as a, as a non-Christian, became a Christian, and I don't know, like, God is tricky sometimes, and I ended up being in the same, just as I started dating Jess, uh, and this girl and I ended up being in the same class together, a social work class, and I'm like, oh, this is the last person I want to be in this, in this class with, and the Spirit of God says, I put you here so you can ask for her forgiveness. I'm like, oh, I don't want to ask her forgiveness. She was mean. And so I, I told her, hey, I need, to, I need to go outside with you, and I need to talk to you before we get into this class. And, and I asked her forgiveness for all these things. She's like, what are you doing? Like, what is your angle? I'm like, no, no angle. Like, I met Jesus, and I, I'm free. I'm forgiven for all these things. You can be forgiven. And I just want to say I'm so sorry for what happened before. And she's like, very awkward. I'm like, do you forgive me? She's like, yeah, I forgive you. I got to go to someone else and do the same thing. Because you're so free that you can go to those people that you've hurt and harmed and ask for their forgiveness because in that moment, she had lots of questions about who Jesus was and what he was doing to me. Are you sure you're not tripping? I'm like, I'm not tripping. This is, I'm sane and sober and I love Jesus and he's changed my life and I'm so free I can come to you. I wanna, I'll, I'll end with a story. Um, you're invited in your brokenness. I'm also not sorry that we're going long. Um, I, I really sense that singleness and dating is, is something that we need to 
to spend time on as a church. And so I'm not sorry. Um, we, so I, as, a, as a new church planner, I had the opportunity to go to Toronto and go to this little conference. And uh, I wasn't too big into the gifts of the Spirit. If you're like, gifts of the Spirit, we're not going to get into that today. But I, I was very, had all kinds of uh, confusion around things. And I went to this conference, and I was, I was standing there. I was all by myself in a room of people. I just wanted the content. Leave me alone. And this guy came over that I had talked to the day before. He came over, and he said, hey, um, can, can I share something with you that God has put on my heart about you? Now, you need to know in that moment, I was feeling really guilty and weighed down by a lot of stuff in my past, and I felt really unworthy and that God couldn't use me in this city to plant a church. And a guy comes over, doesn't know anything about me, and he says, hey, I have this picture of God. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. You know, like, I, I already think this stuff is kooky. And he says, I have this picture of God being, being a dad. I'm like, okay, theological check. Yeah, God is a dad. And he says, and, and there's this father, and, and he sees you, and you as a son are so weighed down, and you're coming to him with your head down and despondent, and you need to know right now what God wants to do is he wants to pick you up like a little boy, put you on his lap, look at you in the eyes, and say, I love you. And it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of your past, it's because of me, and I am a good dad, and you are my son, and no one has ever been and will be more loved than you are right now. And all that guilt that I felt about all these things and my inadequacy, it was, it was gone, like in that moment, and I'm standing there at this conference, like hands up, weeping, because God just spoke to me through this strange guy right? And I have my hands up, and I'm worshiping, but then it became strange even more so, because the guy still had his hand on my back after 10 minutes, and I'm like, okay, this is getting weird, and so I said, I'm just going to ask him, like, is, is there more to this? Like, what's happening? And, and I'm singing, and I look down, almost like you cheat one of those games in elementary school, like where you're supposed to put your head down and, you know, guess who touched you, but you saw their foot so that you can call them out and be a winner in class. I, I, I like looked down, and he wasn't there. He's back in the back of the room, like his hands up worshiping. And it broke me, like God put his hand on me. Not only was it this, this image of dad loving me, it was this image that I'm going to put my hand all over you, and I'm going to send you into the city with my power. You're loved. You don't need to work out of that guilt anymore. You are loved. And that's what I want to end with today.